Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with investigative historian Mark Dowie and host Michael Lerner, titled First Nations and Dependence. Mark Dowie, welcome to the new school. Always glad to be here. Mark, you recently retired from the University of California Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, where you taught science, environment reporting, and foreign correspondence. And previous to that, you were editor-at-large of Internation, a transnational feature syndicate based in Paris. And before that, and famously, publisher, publisher and editor of Mother Jones. Uh, you've been, written seven other books, including Conservation Refugees, the Hundred-Year Conflict Between Global Conservation and Native Peoples, and Losing Ground, American Environmentalism at the Close of the 20th Century. Uh, you also wrote a book on foundations that uh, we interacted a lot about because yeah. I'd written a book on it that you found somewhat useful. Very useful. Um, and um, I plagiarized been, it. <laughs> right. <laughs> we've been uh, friends for a long time, and the... The title of our conversation is your wonderful uh, uh, newish book, The Haida Gawaii Lesson, A Strategic Playbook for Indigenous Sovereignty. But we also agreed that we may stray beyond this to touch on other aspects of your work and history, uh, including our shared interest in end-of-life strategies. So We always uh, do. Yeah. So. We always, <laughs> the nature of our friendship. We will indeed. <laughs> We've been straying for a long time. So let's set the stage. Uh, who are the Haida Gawai? Who are the Haida? The Haida. The Haida, Haida Gawai is the place. It's the land. Apologies. Yeah, Haida Gawai. Well, first the place. Haida Gawai is an archipelago in the North Pacific. Mm -hmm. um, you may know it as the Queen Charlotte Islands. Um, the Haida took, uh, or they didn't take the name back, um, they gave the name uh, Queen Charlotte Islands back to the, pro the province of British Columbia um, and maintained the name they had called the place for pretty close to 12,000 years, Haida Gwaii. So Haida Gwaii is about 150 real islands and about, a, about another 100 rocks um, in this archipelago. It's one of the most beautiful um, cluster of islands I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's known to biologists as the Galapagos of the north because it, act it actually has more um, local endemic species than the Galapagos do themselves. Um, so it's a, it's a very popular place for wildlife biologists, um, and there are always a few of them there. Uh, the Haida people themselves, um, they don't know, and anthropologists really don't know where they originated, uh, which is not true of most of the native tribes in North, in North and South America. Um, they're... They're very distinctive um, in, in every way. Uh, their DNA is distinctively theirs, uh, and they're um, in every other way distinctive. They have their own language, uh, one of the very few written indigenous languages in the world. Um, and they, um, th th you know, anthropologists um, use who's, you know, most anthropologists have spent time in about 100 different communities before they retire. And, um, they, they all end up with a short list of really remarkable people from their long list of 100 that they've lived with. Anyone that I know of who has spent any time with the Haida have them on their short list mm. of 
incredibly remarkable people. And I, I asked them why, and um, so I sort of to synthesize their answer, um, it's all surviving indigenous communities in the world have survived because they're excelling at something, right? Um, it could be hunting, it could be fishing, it could be um, art, it could be um, anything, uh, navigation, there could be good um, migrants of one sort or another. The, the Haida have survived because they excel at almost everything, mm-hmm. almost everything they've ever tried to do. And that really is true. Um, they are, I mean, I visited for my previous book over 100 um, different Native communities around the world on every single continent, and the Haida really do, in every way, uh, in my mind, excel um, in every way you possibly can as an indigenous community. They're just... Um, they're terrific fishermen. They're terrific hunters. I mean, their 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 food security is not even an issue with them. It's, it's an issue with almost all indigenous communities. Um, so, they're, and they're um, as I say, they're uh, incredibly wise, incredibly. Um, they're they're both ferocious and gentle at the same time. They know when to be ferocious, um, and. Um, but they defer to being gentle when they're when they're not, um, and um, they're they have survived in ways that many 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 others in the world have not. Um, there were at one point recorded almost seven thousand sixty five hundred to seven thousand indigenous communities in the world. It's down that's down now to in terms of really active communities down to about forty five hundred now. Um, I think if they all go, the Haida will be the last to survive. Um, and partly because they're on an archipelago, they're not, um, they're not um, on a landmass surrounded by um, hostile colonialists. Um, they have, they've always had their own land, but they've been part of, part of the British Empire, part of Canada, part of British Columbia, um, and have had to um, struggle for 40 to 50 years to get out of the grasps of colonial power, which they've almost completely succeeded in doing. So that's the place and the people. Um, you call the book, both of which are remarkable. You call the book The Haida Gwaii Lesson, a strategic playbook for indigenous sovereignty. What do you mean by a strategic playbook for indigenous sovereignty? Um, well, the Haida, let me take a step back and tell you why I wrote this book. Um, my, my previous book, uh, Conservation Refugees, I visited people around the world, as I said, Many, many shaman, tribal leaders, chieftains, and everything on every continent asked me, do you know the Haida? And I'd seen their art in the, in the Vancouver Museum of Anthropology, and, and um, I'd heard things about them, but I really didn't know much about them. And I would say, why? Why do you want to know? And they all said the same thing. We want what they have. And what they have, which almost uh, all other indigenous communities in the, in the world do not have, is Aboriginal title. Title, title to their land, and sovereignty, uh, jurisdictional sovereignty. So I decided when I got back that this might be my next uh, venture, and I went up and um, spent time in Vancouver talking to lawyers who had uh, interacted with them, either against them or with them. Um, and um, I decided uh, that this was going to be uh, my next book. Um, and that I... But, I was going to write it not for lay readers. Um, I was going to write it for the about 2,500 uh, First Nations around the world that are struggling for sovereignty right now. 
um, and really struggling. And I, so I wanted to take the highest experience, a 40 to 50 year experience, which I'll go into later, it's absolutely brilliant, uh, everything they did, um, to accomplish sovereignty and title and package it as a strategic playbook mm -hmm. so that uh, people anywhere in the world um, could use the generic argument that the Hyatt had used um, and the tactics that they used, which were brilliant, um, to fight for and hopefully achieve sovereignty and title in their, in their world, their country, over there, um, whoever occupied them, whatever colonial power occupied them. So this is a playbook. I, I really, to be honest, um, thought that I might end up selling it to maybe 300 lawyers um, who were working for indigenous people around the world. But it, for some reason, it's caught on. It's actually done better than some of my other books. Um, I don't quite understand why, but I'm glad about that. I'm glad you're all here. Um, and um, so it, it, this is, although, you know, I, I've, I have written the first half of the book for basically a lay reader. Um, it is, in, in fact, the lesson that the Haida, Haida people have given to the world on how to achieve title and sovereignty over the land. And I've packaged it as a strategic playbook. The last half of the book is all the documents that they filed, all the briefs that they filed, all the arguments that they made um, to achieve sovereignty. It's really, really dull reading, but it had to be part of this package, which I'm I wrote for the rest of the world. So that's what I mean by a strategic playbook for, for indigenous sovereignty. Again, modeled on the Haida, the Haida experience and their strategy, which I will tell you more about later. Now, you said there's one passage in the book that you'd like to read to us um, that relates to this. Do you want to read that now? Yeah, and yeah. I'm, this, is, this is laziness because I could, I, could, I could say this myself, but I actually think the, the wording of this is better. And, and what this is, is I read probably 300 or more um, legal briefs, arguments, uh, statements of one sort or another filed by other indigenous communities around the world against the people um, that were um, suppressing them. Um, and so I read, they were mostly legal documents, um, pretty difficult to read. Um, and again, you know, these are all in in nations with different court systems, different statutes, different everything. So what I did was try to synthesize all of their arguments for, for sovereignty and title into a single generic argument. And so, if, so this is the way it reads. Um, and again, this, this, this could be taken and new words put in, new names put in, and it could be used as a generic argument by anybody. We have lived here for a very long time <clears throat> on land we have always assumed was ours. We were here long before you discovered us and our homeland, which we have never left. For all this time, we have thrived alone without foreign assistance and on the resources of our land and water. Despite the fact that we were secure on lands we stewarded in a culture we developed <clears throat> with a religion we owned under laws and life of our own making, you assumed when you first observed us that we were a bunch of ignorant, heathen savages who had no, no idea how to manage land, forage and cultivate food, harvest medicines, worship our creator, trade with neighbors, conduct our ceremonies, 
build homes, create art, or govern ourselves. And you coveted our land and the resources on and beneath it. So you conquered and subjugated us. And behind the superior firepower of your weapons, you assumed title over our land and sovereignty over us. You kidnapped and educated our children, educated in quotes, educated our children, erased our language, sold our resources to others, extinguished our rights, attempted to convert us to your religion, and turned the best of our rituals into crimes. We eventually asked you to reconsider your actions and the assumptions that informed them. You agreed to do so. Amicably, amicably we negotiated an agreement of understanding or a governance protocol, a land use co-management plan, or a treaty, and amicably you signed it. But before the ink was dry, you broke it and returned to confiscating our land and selling our resources to people we had never met. While we are done, while we are close to giving up the idea of sharing sovereignty with you, we have decided one last time to file a claim in your courts where we seek only what we believe we deserve, self-determination, sovereignty, and Aboriginal title to our land, not to some of it, but to all that we say is ours. Let's, let's just take a moment to just sit with that. I just want to sit with that for a moment in silence. So, where did the so-called doctrine of discovery that enabled uh, imperial powers to take over the land of uh, First Nations, as you call them, following the Canadian usage, where did the doctrine of discovery originate? In the Vatican. Right. Yeah. With a corrupt uh, pope. Libertine Pope of Borgia. Yeah. Um, he was the second Borgia, I believe, to be pope. He went under the name of Pope Alexander VI. Mm -hmm. And he wrote um, a long canonical letter to um, the king and queen of Spain, uh, primarily, but eventually to other monarchs in Europe, basically saying, um, I am giving you the rest of the world. Um, and, and under the doctrine of discovery, um, you can go out and claim any land um, in the world simply by planting your flag on it. And um, um, I am declaring it as the direct descendant and connector with God that you have the right to do that, that God is giving you the right to do that through me. Um, and that canon is still quoted in courts of law as the doctrine of discovery, which basically says whoever discovers land owns it, right? Um, and I mean, a lot of the people who went out, set out from Europe to discover land didn't believe there would be other people on the land that they found. They believed that the Americas, if they were there at all, um, were, remember, they thought they were headed for India, the backside of India. Which is why they called the natives their Indians. Um, so they didn't, but they didn't really think that there would be people there. And nor did they know or even suspect that there would be gigantic, very, very modern cities in this world, um, and which there were. I mean, cities with aqueducts and sewage systems and roads and, and uh, 
beautiful, 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 ornate buildings and beautiful, beautiful, ornate pottery and just the most amazing civilizations they, they can imagine. That didn't mean, but of course they weren't Christian, so the, the, the order from the Pope was subjugate them, right, and convert them to Christianity, and if they don't, kill them. If they don't convert, kill them. It was pretty much that simple. And, and even well into the history of America, the American court system and the American Supreme Court, the doctrine of discovery was cited. Um, as the legal doctrine behind which we deserve to um, subjugate Native, Native Americans, push them around, push them off their land, shove the Cherokee over into Oklahoma and uh, the, through the, veil of the Trail of Tears and do whatever we've done and fight with the Iroquois and fight with the Huron and fight with the Mohawk and the, fight with everybody to get what we wanted. It was all under the doctrine of discovery. And that began, that was written by uh, Borgia. A very, very libertine. I mean, we, 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 I chuckle sometimes when I think about the scandals we're reading about in the Catholic Church. It was nothing compared to what was happening under the Borgias. Nothing. I mean, um, so, and he was the worst. And so he writes this doctrine, this, this canonal letter to the royalty of Europe saying, go get it, it's all yours. And I say so. And isn't it the case that the first uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall cited the doctrine, the doctrine of discovery, of discovery in order to yes. in, make it part of the American law canon. Yes. Yeah. So again, it's just and it's it is the it's the opening document for the manifest for manifest right. It's just again worth sitting with this and just letting it sink in that a corrupt medieval pope uh, gave uh, the rest of the world to. Uh, a Spanish king, right? Mm -hmm. And that doctrine, you discover it, it's yours, was the basis for all the law, all the law mm -hmm. that assumes that indigenous people don't have a right to their own land. Mm -hmm. That's where it comes from. It does. And it's, to this day. It's the basis for the whole idea of sovereignty. Yeah. It's just a remarkable fact. So, uh, I don't have a tactile picture of what a, uh, a, a, an individual Haida human being who you met looks like and feels like, and you speak of them as, you know, intelligent, able, their own written language, gentle when they can be, deeply fierce when they can't. I know that they took slaves, and you make a very cogent argument. They had three possibilities when attacked, either kill them or send them back and they'll come back and attack you again or turn them into slaves so they enslaved them for 10 or 12 years. Seven. Seven. seven well, that was, seven that was the probationary period, yeah. the seven years, right. that's right. Right. And I read a passage by one of the, a, a, a journal of one of the slaves. Yeah. Who'd been, uh, he was a, a miner who'd gone, found his way onto the island and was, illegally mining for gold on the island. So they enslaved him. Um, and he describes his experience as a slave. And in there he says, um, I was well-treated, very kind people, um, and I never ate better food in my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, Haida is just, it's a, it's a food paradise. I mean, there's just salmon jumping out of the river into your arms, and, mm -hmm. and there's all kinds of wildlife on the island. There was much more then than there is now. Um, and they were great forager, great 
grape grower. They're, they're, they were agriculturalists, and so you you never got a bad meal. I mean, if you were a slave, you never got a bad meal. And uh, anyway, so they were one of the very very few. I'm told there's. Uh, there's some people in northern Africa that enslaved Europeans for a brief period of time, but I think the Hyde are probably the only people who enslaved white people for any length of time, and they did. But if you were good um, and you were rehabilitated and you promised you weren't going to come back and and I mean, most a lot of them were enslaved for uh, for uh, just looking at Hyde women. Uh, boom, you're. You said they'd, they'd burn ships. They burn the, ships right down to the waterline just line, for just looking at Ida women. Yes, right. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and uh, but uh, they were um, they, they were they were, they were they pretty were humane slave owners. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 I mean, they weren't. Nobody was held in chains. Mm-hmm. They were just. They had to work, and they had to. You know, they were given. So, them. what are they like? How tall are they? They're what a little bit. They're a little bit taller than um, uh-huh. than your average native. Tribe in that part, at least in that part of the world, in mm-hmm. British Columbia, in the British Columbia coast, mm-hmm. um, I'd say that the coastal uh, tribes, the Tlingit, the Tlingit, and the others, um, are maybe six inches shorter. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. It, it's interesting about high. Could be the food. It could be the food. Certainly, partly yeah. the food. Well, another interesting thing about about life on the Haida is that the largest black bear in the world is indigenous, uh, is is endemic to Haida, uh, to Haida Gwaii. Uh, that is that baffles um, again, but the, you know it, it is. It's a very easy place for bears to live. Um, they just scoop salmon out of the river, and they, they normally just eat the brains and throw the rest away, which fertilizes the forest. As a consequence, um, uh, trees in Haida Gwaii grow anywhere from two to three times faster than trees anywhere else in the world, mm-hmm. which is why the forest industry wanted took such a big industry in in the Haida forests. And that's that was really the the struggle. The height of struggle was primarily against the forest industry. Right. In other words, before the forest industry came in, they were, as I understand from the book, managing reasonably well. Well, the, the trappers had been there, yeah. and the, and the fishermen had been there, um, and every extractive industry you can imagine was at least there to explore, if not take what they could. There, there actually isn't. There aren't a lot of minerals. Um, it's a geomorphologically very interesting, geologically very interesting um, part of the world in that respect, um, and very unique uh, part of the world in that respect. Biggest earthquakes in the world on Haida Gwaii. And you uh, said the the waves on the west coast are like ninety feet high. Gigantic, Just because it's right at the edge of where the ocean gets right. deep. So. When the storms come in, they just pull it up right. Yeah, and, and uh, if you've been on the coast of British Columbia and everything, you, you've you've seen these just absolutely gigantic logs that are just yeah. bro- broken away from dams and floor. and they're just being those logs are being tossed out of the ocean by the waves on the on the uh, western shore, which is completely uninhabitable mm-hmm. uh, of Haida Gwaii. They're being tossed um, up three hundred foot cliffs onto onto the onto the land, knocking over other trees. I mean, it's just. And the waves pick up huge boulders. It's just it's, it's just wild over there mm. on the west coast, western side of so the islands. So when people want to visit Haida Gwaii, what's the deal? Well, you can you can I think probably most people that do uh, visit they go from uh, Prince Rupert on a long long ferry across the Hackett Strait, <clears throat> which is the most treacherous body of water on the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, if you've arrived and you still have the contents of your, uh, your stomach, you arrive in, uh, in Masset. Um, and um, you can um, 
uh, traveled around the island from there. It's, do you there's need one a, road. Do you need a permit to go? No. So you, you need a permit. You do need a permit to go into the state park. The whole, and the, I mean, the national park. The whole southern part of the archipelago is a national park, uh-huh. which is managed by the Haida and Parks Canada. You do need a permit to go in there, but the rest of the islands you don't. So you you take this ferry over. Do you bring a car with you? Yes, it's a car ferry. You can. Uh, okay. Um, there's a very expensive car rental at the, and there is a, a very small airstrip um, on the island that and. Small planes fly from Vancouver and Victoria to this small airstrip, and you can rent a car there, too. And there's just one road that goes up and down the island. So did you drive around? I did, yeah. And what's it like to drive around? It's, it's just it's a two-lane highway. It's like driving in West uh-huh. Marin. There, there are gas stations. There are all that stuff. I think there's two, maybe three gas stations uh-huh. on, the, on the whole. So when you meet uh, uh, Haida people, uh, what, what's it like to meet a person as a well, they they visitor. They almost all speak English. Okay, to begin with, um, and um, they're very friendly mm-hmm. um, in person. They're very friendly people. Um, they're they're curious to know why you're there, mm-hmm. um, and um, and when I tell told them where I was there, they would get very wary because they don't like anything that's ever been written about them. Anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they 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 really despise anthropologists. Uh, next down on the list would be, probably be historians, and third on the list of, of despised people would be journalists. So, um, which is incidentally not unique to the Haida people. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have been accused of stealing our story by people who I was just there to visit and um, learn something about. You're here to steal our story. I know. So, what would make them welcome somebody? Um, well, um, if you were bringing, well, I mean, one of the, if I'm go if I go back there again, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back um, as a representative of the Martin Guitar Company, um, and um, and uh, as a representative of what? the Martin Guitar Company, oh, okay. which is the best guitars in the world, yeah. and um, and and with a, a a question for them of you guys, most of the great spruce in the world comes from these islands, okay. and it ends up in guitars. Why don't you guys stop having selling your spruce to guitar makers and start making guitars? You, you guys make the most brilliant canoes in the world, the most brilliant um, carvings in the world. Um, their totems, all of the totems that you see in the West Coast, they learned how to do that from the Haida, all of the West Coast. The, the Klingeth and all of the other great carvers in the, nor- in the Northwest learned how to carve from the Haida. So they're, they're real brilliant craftsmen. And I know, just by watching them work, that they would make great guitars. So if I go back... I'm going to be representing the Martin Guitar Company, and I will be welcome. Because I'll be bringing an industry into the island that will encourage young people to stay there, that will give them a livelihood and bring money onto the island. Well, so speaking of that, you, I understand that a substantial portion of the people who live that there are not Haida. Oh, well, yeah, there are. Yeah, it's part of British Columbia. And, right. um, and remember, there was a huge logging before Haida right, won the, right. the fight against, there was a huge community of people who were just there to log the islands. Right, I know that. And some of them, that, I mean, that the whole story is that they ended up basically working together, the right. loggers and the Haida. And so, and some of the people who really grew to love the Haida are still there. There was a lot of intermarriage, so yeah. a lot of people intermarried with the Haida. So yeah, there are a lot of non-Haida people there, and a lot of intermarriage as there are with all native communities. And and do many of the Haida. Uh, sustain their ability to speak their original language? 
Yeah, they're working very hard at that. It's really interesting. I visited a couple of their language labs, and and it's usually a long, long table with uh, with very sophisticated recording equipment and um, old people um, either speaking or reading. Remember, they have their own written language. Reading high to, into machines um, to preserve the language. Um, I met a young a young man there, uh, Carver, who had just graduated from the University of British Columbia. Uh, if you graduate from a university in Canada, you have to be uh, fluent in one language and proficient in the other, and the other is it's usually English and French. So he went to the British Columbia. He said, "Could I make an exception to the two language rule? It's, that's all it says. Two language." He said, "I want to be fluent in English and proficient in Haida." Um, and they said, "Yes, you can graduate." So that's, and he's probably the youngest pure Haida speaking person on the on the. And island. he is Haida himself. He is Haida. Yes, pure Haida. Yeah. Yes, right. Okay. Gualaga, Gualaga heart. So beautiful guy. It's facing the same acidity of modernity that everybody else is facing. In oh, other yeah. words, they are actually very. I mean, the, their fishermen have state-of-the-art fishing boats. Yeah. Um, and um, they're yeah no they're they're very modern people. They have uh, they had just fallen in, when I was there. What a year and a half, two years ago, they had just fallen in love with cell phones. It was that they, they, they put a cell tower on the island and they had just, and it's really interesting to watch people, particularly native people who have just discovered a, you know, a, an offshore <laughs> technology. And they loved it because it helped them organize, the, the, the cell phone helped them organize. And um, particularly the kids who'd been off island going, off the islands going to universities and schools and, uh, one of the part of their part of their strategy was to get some of them through law school, so that they would have their own lawyers. They wouldn't have to rely on on liberal lawyers in Vancouver to represent them. Uh, they have their own lawyers. In fact, the case against the you know, uh, against the Canadian Supreme Court, which established sovereignty, was argued by um, a native Haida woman. You are listening to a TNS conversation with Mark Dowie and Michael Lerner. Who's also a brilliant singer and just absolutely stunning person. She argued it. She went in front of the the the, the Canadian Supreme Court, seven justices, one of whom I went to school with, um, and she argued the case uh, first in Haida, which they didn't understand, then in English, uh, insisted on doing that, and got a seven to zero ruling <laughs> for some out of the Canadian Supreme Court. And it's divided like the Canadian, but like the American Supreme Court. So. Um, but, and I think, and the, there was one um, non-Hida lawyer that accompanied her, somebody who'd argued a lot in front of the Supreme Court, and, um, but she told me, she said, I could never, ever have won that case. It was Terry that won the case. Well, yeah. So, there are a couple of, well, let's, let's take next the, the story of, uh, because so much of the struggle for uh, uh, sovereignty took place around the forestry mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Why don't you tell us the story of how that struggle took shape and how ultimately the Haida uh, won essentially over yeah. the forestry industry? And the, well, the, the way for the forestry industry works in probably anywhere is they go to a state or provincial government, um, and or in, if it's federal land, they go to the federal government and they say, you know, there's a stand of wood um, for of timber that we would like to cut, and they get a, a timber license to cut it. 
Um, so in up there, it's all it's all done because it's provincial land. It's all done through Victoria, the capital of British Columbia. So a wirehouser goes to Victoria, asks for a permit to cut down um, a section of of uh, spruce or maple or mm-hmm. um, any of the huge, huge trees there, um, any of their big trees, um, and almost without um, argument. Um, the the province will grant them to, grant them the right to do it. Um, they have to pay a stumpage fee to the province, but they get the they get the timber. So the hide end up with nothing, um, except having these uh, heavy beer drinking chainsaw wielding guys come into the island, cut down their trees, throw them, boom them into, and then tow them to shore into mills on shore. They didn't even have their own mills, so they it was just theft. It was outright theft. And of course, it didn't take the hide along to realize <laughs> what was happening. Uh, they're pretty smart people, and and uh, so they um, they started as anybody with you know by petitioning the government uh, for the right to be part of the decision making process. No, um, some of the stumpage fees. No, um, and uh, to, to participate in uh, the 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 yield harvest, the sustainable yield harvest of the islands. No, um, so the the forestry department of British Columbia decided it knew best. And it needed the money, and so, it, so, the Haida, they 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 started, you know, doing it through legal processes, going to court, trying, lost, 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 and then finally just said, okay, we're just going to set up a, uh, um, a barricade around our forest, and we're going to stop the loggers from coming in, and some of the most ferocious and horrible, some of the worst clear cuts ever done on the Pacific Coast were done um, on Haida Gwaii on the islands of Haida Gwaii. Um, so they just said, we're going to stand our ground. And the, everybody uh, came out. Most of the, most of the, for, most of the inhabitants are on the north part uh, of the archipelago, and most of the forests are in the southern part. So everybody gave up what they were doing, fishermen, um, old and young people, and they just went down and barricaded uh, the forest and blockaded the... Um, and, of course, then they call, they call the Mounties. Uh, the, Royal Canadian, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to come in and um, protect the loggers and let the loggers log. And it, it was a standoff that went on and on and on. Got a lot of media coverage. Um, and um, I've seen the footage. It, was, it really was um, incredible, the, the, the face-off. I mean, the loggers, the loggers are like loggers anywhere. They're pretty, they're, they're rednecks, Canadian rednecks, and pretty tough. And they, they you know... They, they don't have a lot of respect for Native people generally, um, but here they were being de- denied their livelihood and their work and everything by this um, this uh, randy little crowd of Native people on the islands. Um, and it worked. Um, it worked, it worked because, I mean, if there's a word that comes out of what they did, out of the whole history of their um, their strategy and why it worked, the work is the word is timing. Yeah, yeah. The word is timing. I mean, the Haida um, never did anything without deliberating for a long, long time. Um, with and not just you know not just the, the the tribal council or the hereditary chiefs, but everybody deliberated their strategy for a long time, and to decide whether we should go to the media first or blockade and then go to the media or should we go to the courts first um, and then go to the media and, and all of the different things that went into this particular strategy was very, very carefully planned 
with timing in mind. And timing is absolutely critical um, to any struggle. It's absolutely critical. Um, Saul Alinsky will tell you that. And they had all read Saul Alinsky. Um, really? They'd all read Saul Alinsky? They'd all read Saul. Well, well the leaders had read yeah. Saul Alinsky. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. For those who don't know, say a word about who Saul Alinsky is. But Saul Alinsky was a Chicago-based um, activist um, and radical. He wrote a book called Rules for Radicals, which is really the Bible for radical activism. If, you, um, if you're an activist, you should read the book. Um, and um, he, I think if it, the takeaway from Alinsky is what he calls total tactics. Um, and total tactics says that you examine carefully every, every potential tactic you could use to achieve your goal before you make, make a move. And then you line them up, your tactics, and you do them in the right order, timing. So it, it's Saul Alinsky, really, who taught them that timing was the essence of what they were doing. And it was. I mean, I don't think that, I mean, I've talked to other people who've done analysis uh, or activist analysis uh, of what they did. They couldn't have done it if their timing had been any different or if it had been wrong. If you, if, you, if you go to the media too soon, you blow it. If you go to the courts too soon, you blow it. If you blockade um, uh, a mining company too soon, you blow it. So they very, very carefully deliberated the order of their tactics before they took the next one. So the media, the courts, and civil action were th the three key strategies. Yes, yes. And, uh, my memory is that uh, both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton uh, studied Alinsky's work. I think well, Hillary's and their thesis, opponents made a big thing of it. Yeah, Hillary's thesis in college was on uh, Alinsky, I believe, and Obama worked for a yeah. spinoff of an Alinsky uh, right. group in Chicago. So um, my favorite Alinsky action was in Chicago, and Chicago when Alinsky was alive and active. Um, Chicago uh, had a an infestation of rats um, that were coming off the. This, this, Chicago's a port, so they're coming off the port in the city. It was really serious. It was bringing disease into Chicago, and and the city wasn't doing anything about it. So Saul uh, Alinsky just went around and handed out notices uh, to everybody who could conceivably be uh, trapping rats. Um, or killing rats or poisoning rats or anything to take the dead rats and put them on the steps of City Hall. <laughs> Boom. It was over. <laughs> the, city, the city took action right away and the, and the rats were gone. Yeah. But that, that's the kind of creative thinking that Saul Alinsky did with activism that the Haida took very seriously. Did you know him? I didn't. Yeah, no. yeah. So uh, let's just take a little detour here because... Um, and we'll come back to the Haida, but um, you told me that um, your next book, which is going to be from the University of California Press, is that working title is Now More Than Ever, mm -hmm. and that it's uh, looking back over 50 years of muckraking slash investigative journalism that you've done. Mm -hmm. um, if you just were to begin to reflect on let me just put it this way. What are the three things that you've learned from 50 years of investigative journalism about a successful citizen action uh, to make necessary changes? Hmm. Well, I mean, just to step back again on, on why I'm doing this book, um, 
Um, I, I, as Michael said, I've been working as an investigative reporter for, for about pretty close to 50 years, maybe 48. And um, I have been keeping a sort of loose journal of ruminations about what I've been doing. Um, and I decided that this was a, a good time um, to put them all together and, and into a, a larger rumination. I call it a defense. So the, the total title of the book is Now More Than Ever, A Defense of Muckraking. And I call it Now More Than Ever because I don't, during my time as, a, as an investigative reporter, it was never needed more than it is now in the world, worldwide, not just here, but everywhere. Um, so uh, it, it's, a, it's a sort of large rumination it's not a it's not a memoir. I'm not going to talk at all about myself. It's going to be about um, about the growth of muckraking um, from the Old Testament all to the whole world and how it came, how it how it grew in America. And then you became, think of the Old Testament as muckraking. There is muckraking in the Old Testament. Oh, that's wonderful. Tell us which uh, which parts of the. Uh, the <laughs> I will tell you in the book. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get into the Old Testament. <laughs> yes, but um, but and of course, there's a whole. You mean the um, prophets, basically. Yes, and but and there's a, there's a whole no, there's a lot of expository okay. um, stories and parables. Right. Um, in, in the, and remember that muckraking, we know muckraking is investigative reporting uh, that brings down the powerful people. Before that, before it ha that happened in America, there was classical literature by Dickens and Hugo and Zola and Chekhov and people that were that were exposing horrible things in their society through fiction right. that resulted in social change. That's muckraking. Okay, so excellent. muckraking is a much older tradition than the American form of muckraking, and that's all part of the rumination. Oh, wonderful! Right, um, and um, and you know, it will end up being an argument f for to media for continuing to do this. I mean, American media has been pretty supportive of investigative reporting, um, and and an argument for um, advertisers not to bolt when they don't like investigative reporting in media, and and that society needs this very, very badly and always has. And this has been a cleansing force, not just in America, but it's a cleansing force all over the world. Um, and so, it's so back to my question, if you think about your career in investigative reporting mm -hmm. and think about, like with, with, with the Haida, for example, their three key strategies were the courts, uh, civil disobedience, and the media, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If you were to take those that example, I know this may be an impossible question, but um, what have you seen work uh, when you think of experiences that you've had where your investigative journalism or the investigative journalism of others that you respect has, uh, has touched something? Well, what do you think works? Almost, almost all the regulatory um, statutes, almost all of the regulatory bodies in the United States were stimulated by expository media investigative reporting. Mm -hmm. So take the FDA, for example. Um, um, Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, which was exposed to the, the workings of the Chicago stockyards, led to um, the, the, the federal inspection of meat um, which led to the creation of the FDA, which mm -hmm. we're all very familiar with. So that's that's just one example. Um, so a lot of the um, 
the regulatory agencies, state and federal regulatory agencies, were stimulated by um, expository reporting of terrible things that were happening, terrible diseases that were spreading the CDC as a consequence um, of investigative reporting. Um, and I docu I'm going to document all of that in the book. Um, so, so that's one. So that's one. And, and um, the, but another point you made about the Haida was their exquisite sense of timing. And so we had these three things that we mentioned, but timing, um, in other words, not all investigative journalism results in, in the, the kinds of changes. Not talking. immediately. Yeah. No. In uh, fact, it's remarkably slow it's yeah. sometimes. I mean, um, I did stories 40 years ago that are just now starting yeah. to get results. Yeah. Um, although some of the stories I did got immediate results. And some of them got um, results that were immediate and then were reversed by yeah. subs. I'll give you one example because it's really funny. Um, during the Carter administration, I did a whole series of articles about the export of abandoned hazardous products from the United States to the third world. So it's all of these um, companies that, that, that regulatory agencies took their products off the market in the United States just turned around and exported them to the third world um, where there was no regulation at all. And so people were being subjected to uh, products that were clearly banned in hazards. That was just a, a huge series of articles um, that I did during the Carter administration. Uh, while he was still in office, Carter passed an executive order um, stopping the export of banned and hazardous products from the United States. He said, boom, stop, period. Ronald Reagan comes into office, right, in 1980, the first executive order he signs reverses Carter's order on mm -hmm. banning. He says, no, I don't know. We got to be able to export anything we want. Doesn't matter whether it's um, interuterine devices that are killing women or drugs that are killing people or whatever it is. We, we, we or old pesticides. Right. Caveat emptor out there, third world, right? That's basically what he was saying. So now <laughs> that's an example of a lot of hard work. Um, resulting in something that we all drank a lot of champagne around, you know, the Carter um, executive order, and then was just disappeared in a heartbeat the first first day after the inauguration of That's Ronald funny. Reagan. That's funny. Mm -hmm. It is funny, yeah. but it was sad anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'll come back to the Haida now. I just wanted to give people a sense of that context of 50 years of investigative work that uh, Which, and this is 50 years of, of strategic work, right. the hideout story, yes. Exactly. And remember yeah. now, these are people who had lived on these islands for at least 10,000 years. Right. Uh, there are actually, there have been artifacts found um, off the shores of the island, uh, fish weirs that uh, go back 13,000 years. Mm -hmm. And probably, probably were uh, Haida too, a different, when there was a different land formation. There, 13, remember 13,000 years ago, between then and now, there was an ice age mm -hmm. which changed the land formation of all of that mm -hmm. land. And, but the um, Haida, I mean, Haida Gwaii is what's called a refuge because it survived the ice mm -hmm. age, but along the shorelines it didn't. So that there are, underneath where the ice was, there are, uh, fish weirs that were probably high to 13,000 years old, mm -hmm. carbon dated. We have a mutual friend, Jean Evans, who is the executive director of the Tamil Pius Trust, which works globally. It's a foundation that works globally on uh, uh, indigenous uh, First Nations uh, rights to sacred lands and mm -hmm. so forth. And I called her up 
just before the talk today and, and reached her. She's just come back from China. She had hoped to be here. Uh, and I asked her, you know, uh, what she thought of this book. I didn't realize at the time that she's the first person that you acknowledge in the book. And she said um, that she thought that the book was an extraordinary service. She reminded me that when she was the executive director of the Lannan Foundation, that they had funded one of the key pieces of litigation on behalf of the Haida. That's right. Um, and uh, of course now she works with these communities all around the world. She said that what the Haida had achieved was a, a cultural sense of uh, a, a consciousness of sovereignty um, that they gradually made a fact, in, or almost a fact, I mean, it's still contested in some ways, but that somehow they arrived at the consciousness of their sovereignty and proceeded with this long strategic uh, project. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the process by which, what did it take them, 50 years to write their constitution? Mm -hmm. You know, when they realized that in order to be taken seriously as a nation state in the modern world, you know, they came together and they created a constitution and a whole set of which, other which things. Which is in the back of this which book. Which is in the book, yes. right, yeah. yeah. Say more about that. Yeah, well, first of all, John Evans, who a lot of you know, um, was really, really encouraging and helpful with me. She knows a lot of people on Haida Gwaii leadership, uh, people that I probably couldn't have... Uh, gotten to without her, so I'm, I'm really, really indebted mm -hmm. to her, and I'm sorry she couldn't make it today. Mm -hmm. she's, she's got jet lag, I guess. Um, so the other part of it was... Um, Just, in other words, her point was this... Yeah. Um, no. This emergence of a consciousness of yes. sovereignty, sovereignty, and the sovereignty. long strategic process by which yeah. they integrated yeah. that with legal challenges and so on. Yeah, I I have a whole chapter in here um, on sovereignty, a short chapter on sovereignty, mm -hmm. um, and it probably took me more time to write that and to research that than any others because the word itself is probably the slipperiest word in uh, geopolitical um, discourse in any language. Sovereignty is a very, very um, uh, semantically tortured word. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you go into court and you argue for sovereignty, you have to argue for what the history of that company, of that country defined as sovereignty, what its, what its European origin defined as sovereignty, what the Vatican defined as sovereignty, and what um, the province or state that you're in defined, and they're all different. And your own definition of sovereignty is gonna be different. The reason I think that the Haida won sovereignty is because they said, we don't care what your definition is, right? We define sovereignty this way, and we believe we've always had it. We're not here asking for sovereignty. We're not asking you to let us have it or give it to us. We have it. We want you to get out of the way. Yeah. And that prevailed in court because that made sense. Yeah. So they weren't coming and saying, we want British sovereignty or, or Vatican sovereignty or any definition of sovereignty. So it's just, you know, here's our definition of it. And um, very simple definition, right? It's self-determination, right? right? And um, the courts, I think that's one of the reasons they won it. Yeah. Seven to nothing in the, in the, in the it's just made, it's common sense. 
You weave together. You weave together so many stories here. So there's the story of the emergence of the modern consciousness of indigenous peoples that they are not alone, and the whole UN process of recognizing indigenous Mm. rights and indigenous peoples. And then there's the story of the effort in Canada and other countries, but Canada specifically here about how Canada came to terms with these claims of indigenous Mm -hmm. rights and the whole legal process by which Mm -hmm. not only the Haida, but other Mm -hmm. First Nations fought that battle. And then there's the story of the emergence of the uh, uh, anti-forestry campaigns and the Sierra Club book on the Haida Haida Gawai as a place and the beauty and power of the book. And so there are all these different themes. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can do a better job of counting them than I am, but there's, you know. The grand theme, of course, that this is part of is the very fact that 370 million people um, living in about 4,500 different communities, speaking 4,500 different languages, occupying, that's 5% of the world's population, occupying 20% of the world's lands, managed to put together a social movement that I think is more amazing than any other social movement in history. When you consider the fact that these are poor people without technology, a lot of them, without education, who can't even communicate with each other, let alone with the dominant language, unless they go to school in in the dominant country language, put together a social movement that resulted in a UN declaration on, indiv- on which took them 11 or 12 years to get passed, but they got it through the UN, and now that is the binding document in the United Nations uh, recognizing the sovereignty and um, self-determination of individuals. Of indi- it's not an enforceable doc- doc- declaration, but it's there to throw in the face of any country um, that abuses Native people, and there's, there's still a lot of abuse going on, mm-hmm. um, particularly in Chile. Um, if I do another book, it'll probably be about... Uh, I, I thought about doing a book about uh, Rapa Nui, the Rapa Nui, or on Easter Island, mm-hmm. uh, which is owned by Chile. And where, you know, if they had done anything that the Haida had done, they, the Chilean army just would have come over the island mm-hmm. and killed them. Yeah. Right? So the, the point being there, that uh, Saul Alinsky's you know, point, that total tactics mean you do something differently every time you do it, right? And that's the art of war. I mean, said um, Clausewitz and, and Sun Tzu and everybody who wrote about the art of war, they came away with basically the same thing that Saul Alinsky said, don't ever do the same thing the same way twice. Right, right. right. Um, so that, 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 and that's what they did. They said, we're not going to do it the way. They looked at the American Indian movement. Um, they looked at other movements around the world and other struggles around the world for sovereignty. They, they didn't, they, they weren't impressed. They said, we're going to do it our way. We're going to figure out how to do it right. Um, in the context of where we are, the context of who we're up against, the, the, the global forest industry and the, the provinces of British Columbia and the nation of Canada, we're going to do it and make it work here. Yeah. Right? Let me... Uh, but in the, but all they did that, all that was all happening at the same time that Native communities around the world were joining with each other right. and turning up. I mean, I, I, mean I, go, I go to a lot of international conferences. They're there, yeah. right? 
sometimes invited, sometimes not invited. Right. Um, but they're there to make their claim, make their point that they deserve to be part of the international dialogue of whatever, mm. whatever the dialogue is about. Mm -hmm. Public health, whatever it is, they deserve to be there. And they make themselves very clear. And they usually, I, I know who they are now, so I see them, I see them standing up against the wall. They, they really sit in the audience, they stand up against the wall and they wait at these international conferences where they're not part of the agenda or not part of the program. And then right at the end, they'll raise their hand and they'll just blow everybody in the room away right. with, with an observation they made, yeah. they've made. Just um, remarkable. That, that movement to me is just so incredibly yeah. impressive, yeah. the Native movement. Is there anything else you want to say about the Haida before I shift uh, into some of your other work? Anything you'd like to add or summarize? Um, no, I just, uh, you know, uh, I just hope they, you know, all of the other books that have been written about the Haida, not, not about their struggle, but just about them um, and their language and everything, they hate all the books. I don't know, and and I'd ask them, oh, but why did why do you hate Ian Gill's book? Why do you hate this? Uh, um, and really, one of Canadians' uh, famous poets, uh, Brabant, um, th they hate his book. That I don't know why, but it's all because they felt they weren't respected, um, or they felt that the, uh, something humorous was being said at their expense. There were there were a lot of different reasons why, but it basically boiled down to a lack of respect. So. And I knew this before I started the book. So I figured when I go out there, I've got to figure out, and with the help of John uh, Evans and one or two other people that know the Haida well, um, I figured out how to approach them respectfully. And that's really important. There's a, a word in their language, which is in this book, and I can't pronounce it, it's got about 18 syllables, mm -hmm. but, but it, it's the most important word in their language, and it means respect. It's respect. Right. When they mean it, they mean respect for the land, Respect for their children, respect for visitors, respect for the, for each other, respect for God, just respect in the broadest sense. That's what they teach their children, respect. So I figured, I'll try to figure out what they mean by it and, and, and act accordingly. I got along fine with everybody up there, and I still to this day have not heard very much from the Haida about whether or not they, I haven't heard anything that, they've, that they disliked it. Um, the Haida Nation, which is the government of Haida, ordered a whole bunch of books um, to put in their uh, um, in their the government bookstore. So that's a pretty good sign. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I think it's an extraordinary book, and I deeply commend it. And also, just as a writer and a student of writing myself, it's beautifully written, beautifully organized, and um, it's just it's quite a masterpiece of of writing. So, um, so I love it. Um, so, actually, there's a quote on the cover from Barbara Ehrenreich saying, "America's foremost investigative reporter," which is quite a statement. And one on the back from Studs Terkel, <laughs> <laughs> saying, "Mark Dowie is pound for pound one of the best investigative journalists around." Did he weigh you? Is that how he? <laughs> no, but this, I'll tell you a quick funny story behind that. He wrote that for a book that I wrote in, in the 1980s, uh -huh. and but read it. It's a generic quote, right? Yeah, right. So years later, uh, he and I are in New York. Um, at the same time, at the same meeting, and we were really bored. We were standing in the back of the room. We were really bored, and I said, 
Studs, let's get out of here. Let's go get, grab a beer. And Studs said, no, I got better. I got tickets to the Cubs-Yankees game. Um, <laughs> let's go to the ball game. And we'll, And he had, we're, I was standing there with him and, um, um, God, I can't remember the, who the other guy was. But anyway, so off we go to the ball game. And we're sitting there drinking beer and, and everything. And I say, Studs, um, you gave a quote to my book um, about organ transplanting. And I cited this quote back to him. I said, would you ever mind... If I use, that's a generic quote. It could be used on any book. Can I use it again? He said, be my guest. <laughs> <laughs> so the other guy that was with us was Sidney Zion. And so I, I wanted to use it again, but uh, I, so I told the publisher about that and they said, studs had died by then. Mm-hmm. And, and the, my publisher said, oh, we can't do it unless he, we're absolutely sure that, um, that he said it. I said, now Sidney Zion was dying at the time. He was really sick. And I, so I said, Oh, um, well, the only person who heard it was Sidney Zion. So why don't you call him and check and see if he remembers it. So <laughs> about three days before Sidney Zion dies, my publisher calls him up and says, did, did Studs Turkle say this to my guy? <laughs> Zion says, yeah, well, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the third or fourth book it's been on. <laughs> I love generic blurbs, right? <laughs> You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Mark Dowie and Michael Lerner. So this is where I'd, what I'd really like to ask you. We uh, are sitting here a week before the midterm elections in the United States. And uh, over the last uh, however many years um, with the new regime in Washington, uh, America has changed. Um, How do you hold what is happening in the United States, also in the context of what's happening around the world with the rise of authoritarian regimes? How how do you, in your experience, hold what's happening in the world? Well, first of all, um, well, first of all, um, I'm... North American. I was conceived in Mexico, born in Canada, and lived in the United States. So I'm North American. So I'm a little more international um, than most people I know. However, and my father was a citizen of six different countries when he died. Had been a, a, what so, six? What six? Yeah. Um, England, Scotland, Canada, Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, and Trinidad. He was a citizen of all those. All of, you, well, you had to be a citizen of South American companies. Uh, how did he? Do that. What, what what was he doing that made him a citizen of all those countries? He was harvesting fruit salts. Fruit? Fruit salts. The progenitor of bicarbonate of soda. Oh, he was really? a chemist, yes. Oh, no kidding. But he owned the companies. And if you owned a company in any Mexico or any uh, you South American citizen. company, you had to be okay, a citizen. Okay, I got it. So, right. yeah. so, so anyway, so I'm, I'm a kind of international guy, but I'm not an authority all on on history or politics or everything. I've, I've been really focused... Um, um, on uh, I'm kind of a cowboy who learned how to write. I mean, and I've spent most of my time as a writer focusing on things that I needed to write, which is stuff that I'd uncovered as a reporter. So, so I, I think you're asking a question of me, Michael, that I'm I'm probably no better equipped to answer than yeah. you are. So why don't you okay. answer? <laughs> no. Seriously, well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm I very very yeah. alarmed by the this surge of authoritarian. Yeah. But it's not the first time it's happened in the world. No, no. And it probably won't be the last. No. And I don't think it is going to last. 
Uh, well, that's that's a good thought. You no, know, I don't think so. I yeah. don't. I, but particularly in this country, I, I have, I live in this country because I could have lived in any of the countries mm-hmm. my father had been a citizen of, mm-hmm. um, and and I I was educated in Canada. I could have lived there, but um, I chose this country because of its promise. Mm-hmm. Now I'm disturbed at how its promise is being eroded, um, quite um, actively and deliberately uh, by people in power now, um, and maybe. It may be a country with this kind of promise to be the model for the world and um, the great melody point. Maybe it needs to be shaken up every now and then. Um, and maybe we need to fight back against uh, fascism every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I sort when I, I, I worked in, and virtually lived in Europe for a while, and one of the things I used to do in my spare time was visit the, uh, the resistance museums that exist in almost every country mm-hmm. um, in Europe. They're fascinating. Some of them are open to the public, some of them aren't, but if you say you're a journalist, they'll let you look at the archives. And it's fascinating, the history of resistance to this very f- thing we're facing now, mm-hmm. authoritarian fascism around the world, and, and, and how it was done, how it was strategized. Again, uh, Alinsky probably read the whole files too, but um, you know, I'm, I'm heartened by that, that um, Europeans were able to fight, effectively fight back against fascism in many, many different countries in Eastern and Western Europe, and prevail. So I think, I think we can fight back against it. You describe yourself as a cowboy who learned to write, which is a nice phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what, what drives this cowboy through 50 years of investigative work? What is the underlying uh, passion or um, sense that you've devoted your life to 50 years of it? Why, why, why have you done it? Um, boys, you know, um, I don't know if you, if, if you got, uh, if you can refer me to a good psychiatrist, I, I can, he can probably get it, work it out of me and I'll let you know what he comes up with or she comes <laughs> up with, but I don't know. I mean, uh, is it, is it anger? Um, there's always, always a certain amount of anger. Uh, I mean, I became an investigative re- reporter out of peak. Um, I was a publisher, remember? Mm-hmm. And um, the magazine I was publishing, Mother Jones, Mother was Jones. not yeah. was not publishing hard hitting investigative material. We were promising that we were going to, and I was signing the letters, mm-hmm. um, promising that we were going to do it, building this huge circulation around this promise. We weren't doing it. And I invaded the editorial an editorial meeting one day and said, "Hey, where are these stories that you're promising?" And they sort of uh, said, "We don't know how to do it. We don't know anyone that does." I said, this isn't rocket science. You can walk in, into, spend uh, 10 minutes inside any corporation and you'll find dirt, right? And they said, well, why don't you do it? Right? So I started with the A.H. Robbins company who had just manufactured the, the Dalcon Shield interuterine device, which had already by that time killed about 25 women in America. And I started there and I just, I've, I've worked my, th- my way through probably 200 corporations since. My beat has always been corporations. As Give us a sense of... Name three to five others that you particularly like your work on. Well, I'm most proud of the one I've already told you about, the, yeah. the export of abandoned hazardous products. Yeah. Uh, there probably, we're looking at probably 100 different companies that were mm-hmm. doing that mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. Um, but it, well, I'm probably most famous for the Pinto story. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell us that. But, uh, well, that was, I don't know if you remember the Ford Pinto, but in the 70s, Ford put this little car on the market that they knew when they put it on the market was going to blow up in very low uh, speed rear end collisions, and it did. 
and it killed a lot of people. Um, and um, so I, I started investigating what, what was going on and I found uh, a document in the Department of Transportation that basically um, was a cost-benefit analysis that Ford had created for themselves. I don't know how it wandered into there. That shouldn't have been in the Department of Transportation, but it was. And um, they, the, so the, the calculus was a certain number of people are going to die in these cars, but it's going to cost us a certain amount. And we can settle all of those cases, right? Um, or, or we can fix the car. It will cost us more to fix the car than it will to settle the cases, so let's burn a few people and forget it. That's basically what the calculus was. So then that, was, that story was um, a seminal story in terms of, corporate investigative reporting because it exposed that calculus uh, for the first time. So I, you know, I'm probably most famous for that story. And it was a, it was a paradigm story. Absolutely. It, it broke a whole bunch of new information about corporate behavior, but, but um, I, 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 I wish I got credit for some of the other stories I did, mm-hmm. but because I've done, I've done hundreds of investigative reports. And, um, your book on foundations, what was the message of your book on foundations? I think the central message is that foundations are, are, were created um, in the United States by giving very wealthy people an opportunity um, to control their money through philanthropy rather than pay taxes. So... Um, if you if you look at the uh, the corpus the, of of a, of a foundation, um, five billion dollars, twenty billion dollars, whatever it is, if the foundation hadn't been created, fifty five percent of that money would have gone into the state and federal treasury of the United States. Therefore, we the people own fifty five percent of those corpor- of those foundations. Well, that's not the way they operate. They operate as if it's their private money. They created it. They control it. They put their people on the board. They say what the foundation is going to spend its money on. We have no control at all. So I'm my, the central argument of that book is that uh, organized philanthropy, foundation philanthropy, should be a much more democratic process than it is. Mm. And, it would, and I think if it was, it would work a lot better. Mm. That's the central argument. You know, as, as you know, I, I, I inherited... One of the alumni of our cancer help program, actually two of them, left foundations in my charge. And mm-hmm. it was such a psychic strain to suddenly be responsible for these foundations after years of just asking people for money and never having any. And I wrote this book called A Gift Observed, Reflections on Philanthropy and Civilization, which is a very strange book, but has circulated in the funder community for many years. And one of the things I learned was that if you examine who benefits from American philanthropy, that uh, it unquestionably is, uh, tends to be the class from which the money comes. And that uh, even in social services, mm-hmm. that even in social services, it tends to be the people from... Sure. Uh, yeah. It's the big elite universities. Yeah. And, and therefore, uh, and actually uh, an argument that I make that I haven't seen elsewhere is that the greatest example of um, a successful strat- uh, philanthropic strategy in American history is the Reagan Revolution, uh, which was planned by a a very coherent set of conservative foundations Mm -hmm. and sustained to this day. The whole, the Powell Memorandum, which you know about, the later Supreme Court Justice Powell, 
who wrote this memorandum about how to engineer uh, essentially the Reagan revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was this very disciplined effort to put all of that into place. Mm -hmm. And people say to themselves, well, why is it that progressive foundations can't do the same thing? And the answer is really very simple. It's a fundamental fact of Saul Alinsky and all strategic organizing. You can only organize effectively if you're organizing in your own self-interest. Mm -hmm. And progressive philanthropy, which is basically wealthy people organizing on behalf of other people, are not organizing in their own self-interest, whereas the conservative foundations had an extremely clear sense mm -hmm. of what they were about. Mm -hmm. And whereas uh, progressive philanthropy cares about 100,000 different mm -hmm. things, conservative foundations said, these are the critical moving pieces that mm -hmm. we need to control mm -hmm. in order, because they were worried about you know, what looked to them like socialist chaos and, and so okay. on and so forth. And so they did this extraordinary piece of work. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen this new book called uh, Winners Take All. Have you seen it? Mm -hmm. It's I think it's by a New York Times. Does anybody know the name of the new book? Uh, but it's an extraordinary book, uh, which basically uh, says beware of extraordinarily wealthy people telling you how they're going to save the world. And it's a, a beautiful piece of uh, investigative work. Yeah. So anyway, we share this interest in... And I plagiarized a lot from your book. Yeah, and you were very honest about it. And I'm grateful <laughs> for your honesty. And, and typically for me, I never tried to publish it except privately. And uh, No, but you very yeah. early, I don't think you'd even finished it. When, you, when I told you I was going to do this yeah. book, you handed me your... Your yeah. Uh, manuscript. Yeah, it's I did. Take yeah. it or leave it. Yeah, well, that's how I like to work. Right. Well, so, very generous. So I'm going to uh, uh, close and then ask some uh, uh, from a conversational question from the audience. But um, the last piece, we were just talking about a, a beloved friend of both of ours who is nearing the end of his life. And that got us onto a subject that both of us care about, which is... Um, our ability to choose how we leave this earth. And you've actually uh, talked about that and written about it some. Mm -hmm. And you I made a radio documentary about it too, right? You did a documentary? I made a radio documentary. Oh, you did? It yes, right. And so we were talking and, and... Which can be found on SoundCloud. What's it um, called? It's called Helping a Loved One Die. Okay. And it can be found on SoundCloud. So why don't, why don't we start there? What... If, if you want to help a loved one die, what do you need to know? Well, I need to spend a lot of time with the person first yeah. um, and be sure that they, one, um, are really dying mm -hmm. um, and two, really want to die before they go through a dangerous or painful or um, dystopic endgame. Right? And that's usually the situation that I've been yeah. faced with um, and I think which... Um, now, so many physicians in California under the new statute um, are faced with. Um, and um, so that, that's, that's the first thing I want to know. Um, and um, you know, I mean, when I did it, when I helped people die, which I did, I've done four times, I, um, I, was, I was committing a felony in the state of California um, that punishable by 15 years in prison. Um, and if a doctor had done the same thing as I did, uh, he or she would have been uh, lost committing a license. felony. Hmm? They would have lost oh, their lives. At very yeah. least. Yeah. Or, or been charged with a felony. Yeah. That's changed, right? So, um, 
And uh, although the statute, the California statute against assisting suicide still survives. Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're helping someone commit suicide, you are committing a felony in the state of California. I never did that. I never defined or regarded what I was doing um, as assisting suicide. I didn't think so. I was, I was helping people hasten their death. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what the new statute in California, the uh, um, End of Life Options Act, allows people to do now, to go to the physicians and, and their physicians. And, and that's say, sweeping the country, and you have it in Oregon and Washington yeah, and State, about, and there's statutes, Montana. And there's so. about 25 other states yeah. right now. There are statutes pending, um, laws pending. So, you know, I, I just hope, I, I wish they'd just do what Canada just did. It just said, okay, it's national law in the country, but mm -hmm. anyway, that's not going to happen in this administration. But um, anyway, so we were talking, and and you told me that Kaiser now is using secanol, uh, and that the really good stuff to use is Nembutal. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you told me that uh, right after the California law passed that the drug company that manufactures it quadrupled the price. Both companies. The, the, yeah. There's only one company that makes Secanol, and that's Lilly yeah. uh, in the U.S., and the one company that, that provides Nebutal, and that's Valiant. And they, yeah, they both uh, grossly raised the price of those after the act was passed. Um, you know, it feels, that, that, forgive me, but it feels criminal to me. Of course it is. That, yeah. It feels criminal. Unlike anything else Big Pharma's ever done. Yeah. <laughs> no, obviously, but, but truly to make it that hard for people to avoid suffering. Exactly. Just yeah. feels well, absolutely Kaiser, hard. Kaiser, which um, is, you know, provides the care. Kaiser has agreed to go along with it right now, and our mutual friend who is dying has been approved by Kaiser for uh, the end-of-life option when he's ready. And Kaiser's uh, bringing him the second all uh, that he needs. But the copay is $2,000. Wow. Yeah, and you have to grind up. And it would be up, double that if it was Nebutal. And you have to grind up 90 pills to do it. You have to grind it. You have to empty 90 pills. Somebody has to do it for you. Probably not going to be well enough to do it. You have to 90 pills yourself, mix it up, and you have to take two other anti-nauseants before. Otherwise, you might wake up in a... Um, Pool of uh, vomit. Whereas the Nembutal... Uh, no, Nembutal is much better. Is much, much better. Yeah. Well, I mean, all the countries in Europe that, that have legalized uh, euthanasia and end-of-life options, they all use yeah. Nembutal. Yeah. Right. I mean, I just feel that, um, you know, I was saying to you, it goes back to John Stuart Mill, it's sort of fundamental principle of English jurisprudence, that we have a right to decide what we do with our own bodies. And for me, it's a very high barrier that uh, a very high hurdle that a government w should need to uh, uh, get over to stop us from doing that. And so, you know, I, I welcome this new legislation, um, but I, first of all, I think that they make it arduous, mm -hmm. uh, and a number of people at Commonweal are working on trying to make it less arduous. Mm -hmm. uh, and secondly, I just think this is criminal, uh, what's going on with uh, the price of these things. Well, that is. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, the, some of the arguments against it um, have some merit. I mean, I think you, you don't want to open it up so wise, so so widely that you encourage elder abuse and you're dispatching grandma to get her estate and um, that that sort of all of which is potentially uh, could be done. Uh, same and the, the, there are I think half a dozen 
organizations of disabled people uh, in the United States who are fighting this legislation um, for that very reason. They're afraid that people are just going to say, you know, you're an enormous uh, drain on the family. You're disabled. Uh, we're going to find a way to help you out. Um, and so there, there are, I think there has to be very, very careful um, uh, oversight of this practice or it will be abused. I agree with you. I, I agree with the arguments that people make against it. Mm -hmm. I, I deeply understand them. And I think it's a very personal question um, as to which side you come down on, mm -hmm. on this. Mm -hmm. For myself, uh, I just, I mean, having done the Cancer Help Program for 33 mm -hmm. years and just watched a lot of people leave the world with a lot more suffering than they needed to. Sure. Um, but I, I mean, I agree that there isn't a simple answer to it. And therefore, what seems like the cautions to keep it from being abused also make it bureaucratic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and not responsive. So I don't think there's a simple, a simple no. response to it. No, there isn't. And, and uh, as a lot of people pointed out to me when I was working on my radio documentary about this, people who write an advanced directive when they're in their 20s or 30s um, and go back and look at it when they're 50 or 60 say, whoa, I've got to change this. Right? I mean, the goalposts shift as you get older. They do. And, and you know, it's very, it's, you know, when you're 30 years old, you think, I'm, as soon as someone else has to wipe my butt, I'm out of here, right? Right. Right. And then you get to that position, you find it's not so bad. <laughs> right? I, I can live with this. So, I mean, you sh the goalpost shifts as you get older. So um, all of the, you know, all of the, uh, the arguments that an advanced directive is something you should act on and, and the, the thing it's, you're, but you're absolutely right and so is John Stuart Mill that, that we essentially should control the end of our lives and have complete control over the end of our lives mm -hmm. and the idea that, that is practiced by right, hyper-religious uh, health institutions that you keep people alive even if their health directive says do not intubate Mm -hmm. And do not resuscitate. You intubate and resuscitate anyone because God takes them out. We don't. And they don't take themselves mm -hmm. out. Yeah. Right? So um, that's, what, that's really yeah. what, what we're yeah. up against here yeah, is, is hyper-religious views of life and death. Yeah. They're playing God by intubating. Yes, yeah, right. God does for intubating. So I want to open it up to some yeah. comments. Let's start, let's start with our original subject, the, of the Haida. And any comments or questions on the Haida? Did I see it? Yes. Um, I, I'd like to know if you can tell us anything we can learn from their, um, <clears throat> their governing structure. Yeah, they're, um, they, again, were very, very studious. They went out and examined the government, governing structure of many, many nations, including Canada and British Columbia and the United States and, um, and Europe um, and other native, uh, the Iroquois, um, uh, civilization, which has a very, very similar constitution. In fact, we modeled our democracy on the Iroquois. You may know that. Um, so they looked at other, uh, these other uh, nations, both European and non-European nations, and they put together, as, as Michael said, it took them almost 50 years to draft their constitution. And the constitution is in here, and it's brilliant. It's, it, to me, it's a synthesis of, of a standard democratic constitution that we, you would see with the, the United States or Canada or uh, any, any constitutional democracy and 
um, a very, very earth-committed, land-committed um, civilization of people. Their land rights to them are just way, way, way more. And th when they say land rights, they don't mean our rights to the land. They mean the land's right not to be abused. That's written into their constitution. The non-abuse of land, the non-abuse of, of, of uh, the creatures that live on the land. Um, so, and their constitution protects animals as well as humans. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's in, 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 the wording is very similar, but, but the, uh, the protections are very different. Others, yes. Um, did the Spirit Bear Youth Coalition play any role? Sure. They sure. did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Both ways. I mean, the Haida were very active in that coalition, as well as, as the Spirit Bear people. Yeah. Spirit Bears, for those of you who don't know, is a very unique bear uh, to the uh, the west coast of British Columbia, and it's it's not a polar bear, but it's it's a it's, a, it's an albino bear. It's a very very light colored, beautiful beautiful bears. Um, that uh, exist on the west coast of British Columbia. And they, they became the symbol for a coalition, a native coalition on the coast. Yeah. Other questions? George? Yeah, Mark. Um, clearly, you put the book out not just for uh, First Peoples to read, but for us to read also. And I'm curious, um, on Haida Gwaii, are there any politics, or is there only governance? In other words, we're stuck in our era now between politics out of control and the suffering of efficient governments because of the politics, right? Um, did you see... I do, they're political people, and they have their conflicts, and they have their conflict resolution um, systems. They have, they have courts, um, and there's a lot of mediation. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things that I found about, about the Haida, which I put a sidebar about in this book, is about Haida power. And the, I mean, the Haida, if you haven't read the book, if you've read it, excuse me for repeating something you've already read, but um, if you look at a Haida power on the surface, it looks like pretty much like a patriarchy, right? The, the men, the, the chiefs, all, all the chiefs they've ever had except for one has been a man. Um, the hereditary chiefs are men. The, 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 the local chiefdoms of the villages and everything gets handed down through uh, male to male to male to male. However, if you go in and you listen and you watch closely, you, you'll learn. And I learned this from one woman who told me this about three weeks after I'd been there. I had no idea. She said, well, you know that behind every powerful man in Haida Gwaii, there's five or six women. Um, five or six women. And it's a committee. It's a formal committee of women that have known the man almost all his life. Some of them are aunts. Some of them are, are sisters. Some of them are... But they're women who know known the man all their lives. The only qualification that is required to be one, on part of one of these committees, and this is the way she worded it, was the woman has to be Pastor Moon, right? So there are elderly women, there's five or six elderly women behind every powerful man. He cannot do anything without going to his committee, right? He can't do, he cannot negotiate anything. He cannot go buy, a, buy a, a major piece of equipment. He can't do anything. He can't go to the government and petition the government without first going to his committee of women. So who's really in power in Haida Gwaii, right? Do they have political parties? No. no. Inequalities? Hmm? Inequality? Well, I suppose they, yeah, they, they, a lot of the, a lot of the, the people who were slaves, um, when they were released from slavery, stayed with the Haida. They, they intermarried or they stayed. 
But that's a subclass in Haida. And they, but it's like, it's like the relationship you have with um, someone who you spend most of your time kidding about your differences and everything. So the, the, the Haida kid the ex-slaves a lot, right? And, um, you know, they're always telling them they should go move to another neighborhood, right? And, and that, but it's not hostile, really. It's kind of joking and capping and, and, and kidding. But it, there is definitely um, a class... So the, and the children of slaves are, you know, they're the, everybody knows that who the children of slaves are. They're treated a little bit differently, and and, and of course, a lot of them they're white slaves, so they're not Haida ethnically um, or uh, genetically. So yeah, there's there's some yeah strata. You are listening to a TNS conversation with Mark Dowie and Michael Lerner. Ned. So I'm curious about commerce. What 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 sort of commerce? That you're, you're sort of suggested it's a modern place. I mean, are they they're simply taking control of their land and managing their forests in such a way that suits them? Mm-hmm. But also that is probably what they have is their, uh, or that you you say they're good at everything. So maybe yeah. they're good fishermen. And yeah, they're good yeah. This and that. So so they're all their commerce is. They the Haida had a currency before any civilization in the world had a currency. And I have at home. I should have brought it. Um, I have a Haida coin uh, currency, and they're they're um, they're made out of copper, and they're called coppers, and they range in size from something about like this to something that only ten men can carry, and it's, they're either identical, they're just bigger, right? But that's their currency. So you want to buy a house, you got to get ten guys to carry one of these big pieces of copper, right, to buy the house, right? They're, they're Canadians now. They're in the Canadian money system, monetary system. But that's been very recently. They had a currency trading system interior just inside Haida Gwaii for thousands of years, way, way, way before anybody else had a currency. They did. That's so they're sophisticated, they're sophisticated um, economists. They understand how money works. Uh, they understand them. I mean, they had a reserve of, of, of coppers and, and currency. Um, and um, they were loaning money. Way, way, way before other civilizations were learning. They're, they're really remarkable people. I mean, and as any anthropologist will tell you. And my next question is, is education. What, what could you say about their education system? Um, how they raise, how they raise their children in terms of education. Education, education is very, very valuable. And uh, I mean, as you, as I, when you heard me read my thing, their children were at one point uh, taken out of the community and educated in the Canadian schools and sent back. Um, as good Canadians who spoke English and practiced Christianity. But um, the Haida schools now, they teach all of the skills that we learned in school, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, but they also learn Haida history, Haida culture, Haida language. Um, and there's a, every attempt made through the education to preserve Haida culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, does, that, does that include like craftsmanship things as well? Does that, does yeah. That... Yes. 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 And they are very highly skilled craftsmen, highly skilled. They make they make they make canoes out of a single piece of wood that will carry sixty paddlers, mm-hmm. 30, 30 on each side, oh. and they go. They go, and one of the protests they took that canoe down to Vancouver with sixty paddlers mm-hmm. appeared in the harbor in Vancouver, okay. right with sixty paddlers that got attention that got media attention. Don, well, this is a broader question. If you're ready for that, um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, yeah. this idea of manifest destiny and and Pope and all of that. It, it has seemed to me, uh, looking, you know, back as far as there's documentation that um, 
peoples, um, tribes, um, civilizations for thousands of years at least have have somehow um, decided for themselves that they're the best and 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 sort of degraded the people whose land or or resources they want to conquer and and they've just gone in there and you know wiped them out or mm -hmm. uh, enslaved them or you know Genghis Khan and and, and Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole bunch of them, and and and, and in tribes as well. Uh, that, you know, tribes in, in Peru, uh, even um, recently, still have have taken it as sport to go and you know raid another tribe mm -hmm. and kill mm -hmm. the men and take the women, and, mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm just wondering if this is like a very deep part of the human genome and down back into our reptilian brain and that's why it it bursts forth when, when somebody you know condones it it's just been repressed by civilization and then along comes trump and says hey this is fine to be this way and go at it and and it just comes out it's mm -hmm. been pent up and mm -hmm. and i mean that's a very disturbing thought for me but mm -hmm. it, it just seems to have played out so many times that, like yeah. that's the way we are yeah, I mean, you're right to, to, to observe that um, all of the bad things that people did to people were not Europeans suppressing Native people. Um, probably the most vicious war ever fought um, in North America was between the Huron um, and the Iroquois. Absolutely vicious war. This thing, the shit they did to each other, nobody would ever even imagine, you know, doing to people, skinning people alive. Really, really horrible. You don't want to hear it. Yeah. Horrible. Um, so, yeah, and the Paiutes, you don't want to mess with the Paiutes if you're a Plains Indian. Um, they'll wipe out a village of other Native people in a heartbeat if you get in their way or you hunt on their land. Uh, that's, it's over now. But So, yes, you're right. I mean, everybody isn't <laughs> beautiful and wonderful just because they're indigenous. And, uh, and Europeans and European settlers and colonists are not the only people who um, subject, subjugated other people. You're right. Um, but the, the whole idea of manifest destiny was not invented by Indians, not invented by Native people. Oh, well, I guess my, my ultimate question is, like, given that, if, if that's part of our genome, how do we get beyond it? To, to <laughs> I don't think it is part of our genome. Okay. Uh, if you believe in, in, in genetic determinism of behavior, you're entitled to believe it. I don't. Okay. Well, yeah. that's pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, are there other indigenous people who have used the Haida method of getting sovereignty? Yes. Like in North America? Yeah. Or? And the Haida have made it very clear that they will come anywhere that they're invited to come um, and help people do this, right? And um, the, 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 the guy who was the chief of the Haida during uh, most of this, an amazing guy named Guja, um, who's now retired. He's been retired now for almost 10 years. He travels all over the world, basically teaching this lesson, mm -hmm. right? Um, Are they using your book, do you think? I think he is, yes, okay. yeah. I mean, he likes the book. He told me that. I, I, I talk about him, him in here. I interviewed him twice, a great length, once sitting and once walking. But both times I had to take notes. You can imagine hiking. And this guy just walks like 18 miles an hour. So I'm trying to take <laughs> He was, but what an amazing, amazing guy, really. A um, couple more questions. Uh, yes. 
I would just like to suggest that using a cable decree for American government policy is a violation of the separation of church and state. Well, tell John Marshall that. <laughs> Next time I see him. <laughs> one more question, comment? I mean, I just, one thing about the Hyatt of people that I, th I think I forgot to tell you is that um, they are fundamentally and culturally anti-narcissistic people. So they really, really resisted the whole idea of having me turn any of them into heroes of this story. And I was warned about that, and I was warned by their elders, and I was warned by the women who described the power um, and think, don't do that. And it's really tempting to take this guy, Gucha, who I've mentioned, and, and turn him into a national hero, which he should be, but um, he would hate the book if I'd done it, and, and the Haida would uh, give him a bad time if he did it, if I did it. Um, how do you, why do you deserve all this credit when it was us? This was not a, uh, a war, a battle struggle by, uh, fought by heroes. Um, it was wow. fought, fought by people, just wow. ordinary people. Wow. Mark, uh, one last question. Mm. I've been sitting here looking at your right arm, which bears the tattoo, certain of nothing. Uh, what is the story of your tattoo? <laughs> I should have rolled my sleeves down. Um, yeah. Um, you, you, of course, most of you will remember uh, Tony Anthony Bourdain, um, who I regard as a journalist, incidentally, not as a chef, although he's probably one of the best chefs ever. Uh, but, but if you watched his program um, um, over the years, um, you realize that this guy was a who was a preternaturally brilliant uh, internet foreign correspondent, and so and I really I grew I never knew him but I really grew grew to love him through his program and through the things that I'd read I mean uh, that he'd written and about him, and um, he uh, coincidentally took his life just over a year after one of my children did. Mm. And my and he had before he took his life, um, he had he was covered with tattoos. And the last tattoo, and it wasn't right before he took his life, but the last tattoo that he'd had was he, around his bicep. He said, "I am uncertain. I am I am certain of nothing." Mm -hmm. And um, I knew that. And so after he died, and I thought, and my son um, who took his life uh, about a year before was uncertain of everything. But certain of nothing, and I thought in tribute to them both, I'll, I'm just going to get this tattoo. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's a conversation starter because it it doesn't just, it doesn't just mean one thing. Oh no, I've had great conversations that started with people reading my arm, and um, it, it has more than one meaning, right? Uh, being certain of nothing, and and it's of course it is the bedrock of nihilism. It's the bedrock of skepticism. It's the um, Every journalist should read this before they start a story, because if you go into a story certain about anything, you're going to f*** the story up, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of a journalist mantra, in a way, uh, to be certain of nothing um, until you've tied down the facts, and then be certain of everything before you file a story, But um, because the fact checkers are going to get you if you don't, but if you aren't. But um, So it's, I, I, I use it, I look at it every day and think about it every day, and um, think about Tony and my son and... Uh, what it means, yeah. Mark Dowie, author of The Haida Gawai Lesson, a Strategic Playbook for Indigenous Sovereignty, an investigative reporter for almost 50 years, Barbara Ehrenreich, 
calls you America's foremost investigative reporter. Thank you so much for being with us at the New School. You're welcome. And you know, Barbara and was my first co-author I ever worked with. Yeah. I'm still in love with her. I mean, yeah. she's just the most delightful, easygoing, easy yeah. to work with person. I just had a great Thank time. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Mark Dowie and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.